fans, T-Boss is 13-3 here with Top Shelf Guest, former Western Michigan Bronco, currently in the Hall of Fame, Washington Capitol, Colorado Avalanche, Philadelphia Flyer, longtime hockey analyst and current Flyers president of hockey operations, Keith Jones. This episode is sponsored by Riverside Bike and Skate, Raleigh's Coach Club, Dooley's Pub, Market and Johnson, and Chippewa Valley Orthopedics and Sports Medicine, which has been committed to the healthcare needs of patients in Western Wisconsin since 1954. Mogi. Well, this uh, we got this interview through our buddy Steve Coates, who we interviewed last year. So we're here at the Flyers Training Center in Voorhees, New Jersey, and we're so excited to sit down and talk with Keith Jones. Excited to be here, guys. I'm not so excited you're hanging out with Steve Coates, but I'll, I'll, let, I'll let that pass right away. Well, we're going to clear the air on that regarding our former guest, Coatsy. Jonesy, it's, it's our understanding, obviously, that you've been inducted into the Broncos Hall of Fame. Coatsy has been inducted into the Michigan Tech Hall of Fame, which has a 103-year rich history of hockey. Doesn't that mean his induction is a little bit more prestigious yeah, well, than yours? What, what it does mean is mine was just diminished quite a bit. I thought it was special that I went in there. I guess I let anybody into these universities. But congrats to Coatsy for that. He deserves to be. The fact he's still alive is a miracle the way that guy parties. All right. All right. Go ahead, Moog. All right. I love so, that. That was awesome. Born and raised in Brantford, Ontario, the birthplace of Wayne Gretzky. Tell us about growing up there and how you were introduced to the game. Yeah, I started playing uh, and started skating, you know, before I can even remember it, almost like when we learned how to walk. So I, when I think back, I don't remember my first time on skates. It was just something that seemed to just be happening. Um, played on the outdoor rink quite a bit at uh, the local school that I went to, the public school, Grand Woodlands is what it was called, and the parents would uh, get out there and freeze the ice. We actually had lights, believe it or not, going back that's a long time ago now, um, <laughs> where we the, the parents did a great job in making sure that the tennis courts were flooded, boards oh. around, uh, nets on the ice without any netting. Uh, often it was a blanket that was put over top, and we would skate around all day, no helmets in those days, of course, uh, but it was a great way to play, and I would play all day and into the night. And then I would skate home after. The winters were a lot rougher back in Brantford in those days, so you were able to get on the road uh, with your skates and skate all the way back to the house. So great memories of that. Um, just loved to play the game. And then started playing organized hockey shortly after after that, probably around the age of four, um, and was very good as a young player. Um, excelled at it uh, really up until the age of probably 12 and then things kind of changed for me players started to grow I wasn't growing and my play kind of diminished from that from there to the point where I was playing hub hockey not triple a hockey not the highest level of minor hockey as a I want to say minor midget year, so probably around the age of 15 or so. I dropped okay. back down and played one year of hub hockey, kind of found my game and started to grow again, and the things started to kind of get better from that point on as far as the level of hockey that I was playing. So let's go back to the initial introduction. So the parents took care of business, getting the ice ready to go. You had the rink, you had the boards, but you really didn't do anything organized. You just pretty much skated around, played shinny, just – Correct. Kind of figure yeah. it out on your own. And, and we did have a league that was established called a park league. So you would play all the 
schools, uh, the outdoor rinks around the community, and most of them were at, at local schools where they other parents would flood their rinks as well. It was a somewhat organized league. Uh, the benches were actually the snow banks. You know, you would cut out the bench kind of like that, and that's yeah. where you would sit when you would head, head over after your shift was over. So sure. I do have very fond memories of those. And I, I literally was probably four years old, and I remember it because that's how much it meant um, for me and, my, and a lot of my friends to be out there and able to be able to play hockey. That's fantastic. But as you grow older, you said you your skills didn't quite keep up or your size didn't quite keep up to the kids, but you ended up playing junior hockey at a, at a C level at some point then too. Yeah, so after the AAA uh, mid, major midget year, after I played the one year of uh, hub hockey, I reestablished myself. Some other players went on to play junior A at that time, and that opened a spot for me to get back on the AAA team. After that season, I was draft eligible for the OHL. I was not drafted. Um, didn't really expect to be. That wasn't like scouts were knocking on my door saying, you know, get ready. Um, but I did think I would play junior B hockey, which was in Brantford, a team called the Brantford Classics, which Rob Blake played for. Um, and I thought I would have a pretty good chance to do that. I received letters in the mail for junior C hockey. Um, Norwich and Paris, Ontario had teams, and I kind of laughed about it. Like, I'm not going to go there. You know, like, what's a junior C? I didn't know what it was, right? It was only 15 minutes away from my house. But after being cut from junior B, I was called the junior C team and said, uh, can I try out? And tried out. And it was no guarantee that I would make the team. Although in my mind, I thought I would, but um, made the team kind of as a maybe third, fourth line player. And, you know, you're playing, you're still 16 playing with 20-year-olds. Sure. A lot of farm boys and small town teams riding the school bus and, you know, the wives and girlfriends, believe it or not, a couple of guys were married riding on the bus with you, case (laughs) of beer at the back and... Cowboy boots, sweatpants, and a uh, you know whatever shirt you felt like wearing that day. So <laughs> that was uh, one year of that. I thought, you know what, I'll think I'll try out for the junior B team next year. That that season went well, especially in the second half, and I really started to grow a, a little bit at that time. But tried out the next year in Cambridge for a junior B team. The Brantford team had been suspended for one year for a bench clearing brawl incident that had happened the previous season. So tried out in Cambridge. Made the team and decided, you know what? I don't, I don't want to. I don't want to play junior B. I'm going to go back and play junior C again. So oh. I played junior C as an 18 year old, um, and had a great year, and had a great time. Uh, chicken beer, chicken wings, and beer uh, during the week. One practice a week and games on the weekend. And oh. I thought that was pretty cool. We were done on February the fourth that year. The season was over. Dang. Oh, yeah. No playoffs. No guys. playoffs. <laughs> oh, we had playoffs, but it was that's how quickly that season would end. Okay. And I used to get $10 in gas money for to go back and forth from Brantford. Eventually, I moved in with a buddy of mine at his place with his family in Paris. And uh, my junior C second season went very well to the point where I tried out for junior B the next year. You know, as you're describing these these steps you took I, i'm i'm noticing a smile on your face you must have some just awesome memories of this i do you know it was a great time i still have lots of friends that i played with during that time uh for me it was when i look back on it i learned how to play as a smaller player um while i was growing late um so i learned what it was like to 
need your teammates to protect you at times. Uh, I learned what it was like to try to survive just at that level, um, to play in multiple roles, um, to wait for the chance to you know, get your power play minutes, but in order to do that, do the other things properly to get that chance. So I, I do think all of those things really benefited me. Um, some bench clearing brawls where I was glad I had some big, tough teammates. I could get in there and fight the right guys and I wouldn't have to take those boys on. So had I fought the wrong guy, I wouldn't be here talking to you guys. So you had brains. Yeah, I was smart enough to know what situations to get in and where the exit was. So those things can serve you well. Well, so, Go ahead, Mo. Well, speaking of brains, so uh, you didn't go the, the major junior route in Canada for yeah. um, your your next step, but you did go to U.S. hockey in uh, at Michigan uh, at Western Western Michigan, Western Michigan yep. Broncos. So yeah. how did th- how did that? So I played the happen? one year of junior B hockey. Um, after two years of junior C, I actually played in Niagara Falls, and um, had a couple of buddies that were on the team from Brantford. Kenny Wilson, one guy that uh, stands out to me. He had been there for a year and uh, kind of helped me get down there. Tried out for that team as well. Made the team late. Um, it was uh, just a really good group of guys down there. Had a very good season. I don't know how many points they had. It would be probably around 100 and a half. But we had a lot of guys that were producing on that team, a lot of very good players. Gilbert Dion was on that team. Uh, Marcel's younger brother, who went on to play some games in the NHL, won a cup with Montreal. But he was a young guy. He was probably 15 at that time, and I would have been 19. So uh, that year went very well. A lot of scouts came to Junior B games to look at other players, and often on other teams, and one of them saw me play. And uh, a gentleman named Sam McMaster, who went on from Washington to be the GM in L.A. many moons ago, uh, had something that he saw in me that um, he was surprised about at that level. and thought I was the best player on the ice, the game that he watched, and he came multiple times after that. And, you know, the player he had come to watch play on the other team was a guy named Jim Sully that actually did play some NHL games but um, spent most of his career in the minors. But he was a young kid at that time. But uh, he talked to me after one of the games. Our coaches said, hey, this guy from Washington, I I started laughing. I go, okay, boys, (laughs) where's the camera? You know, it's like. And uh, we had this conversation. He goes, I really like the way you play. You're not ready, obviously, to get to the NHL. We'd like you to go to college. And then college recruiters started to come by at that time. It was um, it was late in the year. It was February. So most kids have already committed. Yeah. So a lot of schools didn't have a lot of scholarships available. But uh, Western Michigan was one of them. Northeastern was another. Lowell University was a third. I had planned to visit all three schools, um, but I really liked the fact that Western Michigan was closer to Brantford than the other ones. Uh, be a five-hour drive for my parents, and uh, I thought that would be you know a pretty convenient thing. Um, so decided after a few trips to go to Western Michigan. Bill Wilkinson was the coach. Great man. It took it took uh, more than one visit from him to convince him that I was the guy that was <laughs> worth giving a scholarship to. Okay. So it wasn't something that he said right away. I actually I went on my visit and he brought me in his office and said, "I, I don't know. 
Uh, I don't oh, know. Boy. So I thought he was just going to offer me then. I went back. I was getting ready to go to Northeastern. He came and watched me play another game. And uh, he called the morning I was going to fly to Boston. And he said, hey, we would like to give you a scholarship. And I said, good. I'll take it. And I didn't even go on my other recruiting trips. Oh, wow. okay. I didn't feel like flying that day anyway. So <laughs> there I went. <laughs> right. That's, that's an odd. What, what skill set did you bring that they were interested in? It's a great question. Um, <laughs> I would say determination. Okay. Uh, I fell down a lot. I had never lifted a weight before I went to Western Michigan. I had never been in the gym. I was, wow. ni- I was 19 years old. I was as raw as raw could be. I had a fat gut and skinny arms. And, so, uh, so you were just I, playing for fun. If there was a shirts and skins game, I would not you have played not because I wouldn't have wanted to take my shirt off. <laughs> That's a fact. And if I ever had to go to a combine in those days, I would have quit hockey. Oh, oh sure. Guaranteed. Yeah. I would not have gone through that. Okay. I went to Western Michigan after, you know, a summer long. I had a guy named Paul Polillo. was a big college scorer. He was from Brantford. And he was at Western. He was going into his third year. And I would see him in the summer at the gym. And I go, what am I, you know, this thing they sent us in the mail. Do I have to follow that? He goes, oh, nah, don't worry about it. And I'm like, so he really set me up to get crushed. <laughs> and then I, I got there and the guys were warming up with uh, 135-pound weights, you know, doing the bench press. Yeah. And I thought, well, it doesn't look that hard. They're just slapping it up for the warm-up. And then, uh, sure enough, I got underneath there, and I couldn't get it off my chest, 135 pounds. Oh, yep. man. Going into my freshman year. Mike Eastwood was there, who was a former teammate of mine at Western. Had a long career in the NHL, and in fact, is working for us now as one of our scouts, our pro scouts. He was there to help me get that bar off my chest. And it was he was a sophomore at that time, and he said, that was me last year. You know, so, okay. and okay. that's what Western Michigan was. You got, you know, late blooming athletes that weren't highly recruited to the top schools. Okay. And, you know, and they hit on a few. Uh, Eastwood was one of them, and then myself, but um, that's kind of what it was like. And then you started to figure it out. You know, the, the program there, the emphasis on the weightlifting, being in there with the football players and their strength coach and, you know, I hated the first six months. I, I wanted to go home. I, I was like, this sucks. And it was hard. But practices were tough. Games were, you know, difficult. But I always loved playing the games. Yeah. And then the other stuff just started to slowly go. come along. But that's a, that's a project. That's a project. So started with, I think I had nine goals my first year there, which isn't bad for a freshman. But kind of showed enough that there was more potential there to to keep digging into. Well, obviously there was more potential because you bloomed and eventually got drafted by the Washington. Well, drafted before I went. Yeah, that was I was drafted in that summer before I went to school, uh, which was another surprising thing. Um, as much as I had talked to them a couple of times, I was surprised to to uh, get the call. I was so surprised I was not at the draft. I was. I was at uh, Flamborough Downs betting on the horses. And, uh, <laughs> As a young, yeah, a young man should be. <laughs> yeah, okay. took all my money I made from the golf, uh, from the um, the uh, Ben Mar go-kart track near Paris, Ontario, and uh, would run with my check over to Flamborough Downs and, and try to hit a trifecta. But anyway, I got home from that, and my dad was sitting on the, on the uh, porch, and he's, he's like looking all excited. And I'm like, what's wrong with this guy, right? <laughs> He's like, you've been drafted. I go, are we going to war? <laughs> he said, no, you've been drafted to the NHL. So he said, your mother got a call 
from uh, the Washington Capitals. And she thought they were kidding. And so on the phone, they said to her, "How Sam McMaster and his guys, David Poyle, uh, Jack Button, they said to my mother on the phone, how old is your son? And then she said, he's born, you know, November 8th, 1968. And they were uh, good because of the draft list of probably 3,000 kids in those days. There's, there's 12 rounds in the draft back then. Yeah. Uh, I wasn't on that list, even though they had, you know, scouted me and and sent me to talk to all the universities. Um, I was not on that list. So once they confirmed my birth date, they so said, to, yeah, so yep. they said to my mother on the phone, listen to this. And they said over the phone, the Washington Capitals with, you know, the 141st pick, uh, in the seventh round, select Keith Jones. So my mother got to listen to that. On that the phone. Cool. Yeah, isn't that great? So what they said to her was, "Tell your son to be home at eight o'clock tonight. We're going to call and talk to him." And so that's when I got back from the track. They said, "So this is." I still had another three hours left before I talked to him. So I was just so kind of befuddled as to what was happening. So I got the call. Got downstairs. Answered the phone in my parents' basement, where my my sister still lives in that home today, in Brantford. And uh, I just remember looking in the mirror, kind of going, "Is this really happening? <laughs> Do they know what I look like under here?" You know. So I talked to the caps on the phone. Sam McMaster eventually got on the phone, and he said, uh, "Keith, I'm your godfather." He said, I fought for us to pick you with this draft choice, and you're going to make it to the NHL. And I said, uh, okay. And I thought to myself, good luck, buddy. (laughs) So it was uh, get off the phone there, and then this long journey began um, that, uh, you know, one person really in Sam McMaster had so much to do with me getting there because he had he had found me, he had discovered me. So those scouts have a very important job to do. Wow. Yeah, and you rely on, on them in your current job as well yeah. immensely, and we'll get to that in a minute. But, you know, you um, went pro after your senior season ended uh, and played six games in the AHL yeah. after leaving the Broncos. What was that jump like going from college to, to pro? Yeah, I, it's interesting. I you know so many kids leave early now. The system's a little bit different. Uh, I would have left after every year of college. They never called. <laughs> I was begging, like I'm just like get me out of here. I'm not a very good student, and like and I'd call them, and they go, Who, "Who's this? Who?" Get back to school. So finally I got to leave. It was no guarantee I would sign after college. You know, it was no, I had no idea. I had no idea if I could play in the NHL. I didn't know if I could play in the American Hockey League. I'd never had a fight before in my life through anything. Uh, College, junior, you know, I played an aggressive game, but in college you had a cage on. Fighting was not something that was, you know, very, very likely in a game. And I learned how to play kind of like a rat and stir the pot and, you know, cause enough damage but not really have to back it up. So I'd never done that before. So I got to Baltimore and started playing the last six games of their season. They weren't going to make the playoffs. that We brought – there was about, I want to say, six or seven of us that arrived at the same time. That's kind of what we're hoping to do here in Philly is to make sure we have these classes of players that kind of come up and grow up together. Yeah. Um, but it was Steve Conowalchuk, Pat Peak, Byron Defoe, Olaf Kolzig, John Slaney. Uh, there was Mike, 
Mike Bab, Bo, Bo Back. There was like seven guys that had legit Jason Woolley as well. Okay. And a lot of them went on to play in the NHL. A lot of us went on to play in the NHL, but we all came at the same time. Played the last six games of the season. The NHL had a player strike in 91-92, just prior to the playoffs. So they said, go back to school and finish your education. I kind of laughed at myself on that because that wasn't going to happen. <laughs> so I went around back to Western Michigan, drove around in my new sports car and just uh, – Waited for the call. So but that strike lasted a couple of days, and I was called up as an extra player, meaning I had zero chance of playing in a game, but I was going to be around and practice and you know watch the Capitals hopefully go on this long run. Well, they end up losing to Pittsburgh in the first round after being up three games to one. Uh, Pittsburgh went on to win the Stanley Cup that year, and um, – that was my first kind of eye-opening experience of being just having my name announced on the in Pittsburgh on the board as a scratch. You know, I thought that's kind of that's amazing. I I made it that far, <laughs> right. you know, but still never knowing if I could play in the NHL. Um, you don't know. So I played the end of that year. Came back to Washington for camp the next year, and um, was getting sent down. Baltimore and Washington, the, the Capitals and the Skipjacks, shared the same practice facility. Okay. So you were right in the mix with everybody. And um, just remember thinking how much I wanted to play one game in the NHL. You never, you don't know. You really don't. Well, I never knew. I'm sure there's a lot of kids that think they know um, how that's going to go. And if you have one, you just to say you played one game in the league. So the first game of this, on the schedule was against the Toronto Maple Leafs in Toronto. And, of course, I grew up in Brantford, an hour from Toronto. And that was motivating me beyond belief to try to make the team. So when I was sent down, I had a long argument with David Poyle. Not argument, but I made my case as to why I believed that I made the team. And he was really taken aback by it. And in fact, I don't know if he ever had another meeting like that the rest of his career as he's starting to slow down now and announced his retirement last year. But it was 90% of it was that I wanted to, play, if I was going to play one game, I wanted it to be in Toronto. So oh, sure. it was that it was really the motivating factor behind everything that I was saying to him because I never really believed that I was going to last. I just thought I, I knew I was close because I had a good camp. And I thought, I'm going to put everything on the line here and see if I can convince this guy that I deserve to be in the NHL. So anyway, I got uh, he did send me down and played the next eight games in Baltimore the follow at the start of the, that season. It was very productive. And do you guys need the, the lights? lights go out. Hang on. I'll get them. <laughs> yeah. All right. They're probably on a timer. There you go. We weren't moving enough. See, I had, I had you guys held in suspense here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the story's already been written, you aren't, boys. You weren't as demonstrative as some of our, exactly. uh, our guys we've interviewed. Yeah. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah. So uh, where was I with that? You were that at the in? eight games and you were yes, in, yeah. so. And I was productive. I, I believe I had seven goals and maybe three assists in the eight-game period. And I kept telling Barry Trotz was the head coach in Baltimore, and I kept telling him, I'm ready. I'm ready. I need to go up. So anyway, the game before I eventually got called up, I, we played Utica, I believe, and it was a 10-8 game. The ninth goal we lost, by the way. The ninth goal went in. The tenth goal was an empty net goal. I was on the ice, oh. and the, the buzzer went. 
before that puck entered the net. And I was I was mad. I'm chasing the ref. We so we lost ten eight instead of nine eight. There was really no time left, right? It didn't matter. The game was over, and I'm chasing the ref around the ice, and I'm swearing at him, yelling like crazy. And Paul Gardner was an assistant coach with the team, and uh, he's go. He looks at me off, walking off the ice. He goes, "What? What are you doing? The game's over." What? I said the buzzer went. And that goal shouldn't have counted. He goes, well, what? it's over. It doesn't matter. You know, I go, it does matter. I'm minus effing seven. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I was minus seven in that game. So That's not yeah, a good I had stat. two power play goals that I scored, okay. and I was minus seven on the game. So anyway, that was my last game in Baltimore before getting called up. That I knew I was close. I followed the NHL team really closely, and I knew they were struggling at the start. They had traded Dino Cicerelli the year before. They had brought in uh, Kelly Miller's brother, not Kip, but well, if I'm forgive me, I'm forgetting his name. Um, and he was going to replace Dino, and he got off to a really, really rough start. I think it was Kevin Miller. He had a tough start, and I knew that he was kind of on the ropes. There was a couple injuries, and I was listening to a game. They were playing in Vancouver. They were on a Western swing. He had, I had two roommates, um, Trevor Halverson and Rob Leesk, and I'm like, probably not cool that I'm listening so closely to the game. You know, they're they're both playing in Baltimore with me. But So I had a big yellow Walkman, Sony Walkman, oh, those yeah. big things. <laughs> yeah. And I was sitting up in bed. It was a late game. It was like, now it's probably 1130. They're about midway through the second period. And uh, – Kevin Miller gets a spearing penalty and, and they go on a five minute power play and I, they score a couple of goals. Vancouver, I'm thinking this probably, this could work. This could, this could be a good thing. And Mark Hunter had just broke his thumb, Dale's brother. And, um, I was starting to do the math and I'm like thinking, okay, let's, so anyway, that my roommate woke me up with a poke and not woke me up, but got my attention by giving me a tap on the shoulder and said, you know, take your headphones off. The Capitals are on the or David Poyle's on the phone. He wants oh, to talk to you. Here we go. Yeah. So that's um, that's kind of incredible when I look back on that. But so he on the phone said, I don't remember what he said. All I all I remember he said was be at BWI Airport at you know six thirty tomorrow morning. You're going to Calgary. So I'm thinking this is great. Didn't sleep all night and uh, <laughs> get to the airport. And I walk around the corner, and Steve Connawalchuk's standing there, too. And I go, oh, no. Dang it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, are we playing or not? Yeah, you yeah. Know? So we flew together all the way there, staring at each other, both of us wondering. He had played one game the previous year, so he had his game. And uh, we got to Calgary in time for the morning skate, went on, went on the ice. Skated around, couldn't make a play. It was just, uh, it was incredible. Couldn't get her mind off of what was happening. Terry Murray was the coach good friend of Steve Coates, and um, he said, uh, I don't know if either of you guys are playing. We'll let you know tonight when you get to the game. So, of course, oh, imagine how that Jeez, nap goes, right? Day. You're yeah. uh, this crazy journey <laughs> you've been on for so many years is, you know, that's going to be, could yeah. be happening. Yeah. So got there and were informed uh, that both of us were playing. So nice, nice yeah. uh, Skated around the warm-up again, couldn't make a play. Took a penalty my first shift. I was in the penalty box. You're on the stats, though. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, I got that on the score sheet. Theo Fleury elbowed me and broke my tooth in half in the first shift. It was like – it was crazy. But it was uh, it was obviously the chance of a lifetime, and 
I have those. Uh, that's a memory that I'll never forget. Well, obviously, it was a big enough impression that you ended up with a prestigious career after that. Yeah, you know, it was never a given. I, I always had to make sure that I found my way to stay. And that's when I started to try to learn how to fight. And, you know, Dale Hunter once told me that, um, you know, if you're sitting at the kitchen table, there's $500,000 there and somebody walks in and takes it, starts to walk out, or what are you going to do? And I said, well, I'm going to fight him. He goes, well, yeah, start doing that on the ice. Nice. And that was just a great message. I got oh. I got pummeled a few times, but I hung in there and learned how to provide something to the team that they were lacking. Um, more of a spark type player, of a change of momentum type player for my first couple of years and then started to establish the other things that I had done in college, which was score a lot. Um, and started to pick up that side of the game and became a, a really good complementary piece to star players, the third wheel on a on a good line, and that's kind of. But that was a process. Uh, had I not done the little things early on and kind of figured it out, then I would never have had the chance to play with the likes of you know Bondra and Pavanka in Washington, Forsberg on his line in Colorado, Sackick's line in Colorado, and Lindros and Leclerc here in Philadelphia. Um, those are all things that, um, you know, I'd like to say I was fortunate, but I was calculated. I figured out what it would be to play with those players. And a lot of that has to do from growing up and playing in every different role, from being a smaller player to then being one of decent size and then being one that became a stronger player. Uh, physically. And all those things really served me well after, you know, a long and really curved journey to the, to the NHL. <laughs> yeah. So I'm, I'm thinking about that. It's just, it, it's amazing to me where you were and, and where you ended up and, and how you got there. That process yeah. is, is just crazy. You kind of, you know, you're playing junior C, um, you, you played for a year of junior B, you yep. go to Western Michigan, and I I never really heard you say, okay, and then this hit for me, and this is when I, I really got serious. Yeah, so never did. Was there, there never was that no. point, but you had that thought process going. It's like, okay, I got to do this, this, and this to get here, and then this, this, and this to, to get there. You've, you've had a very analytical mind, and you've obviously yeah. followed that process. And look where you are today. Yeah, it's a, it's, a strange, uh, it's a strange story, but that is probably the key factor in the whole thing was just mapping out each step as it came. It wasn't like a huge plan that was in place. It was just whatever the situation was, I found a way to adapt to it yeah. and then kind of make myself maybe even more important than I should have been. And that's... But a lot of it had to do with great teammates, um, my ability to, you know, be a good teammate and never make the other players around feel like in my group of players, my teammates, that I was trying to, you know, do something that was not benefiting them. Um, and when you play a style that's, you know, aggressive, yet not one where you're fighting the heavyweights, you need your teammates to have your back. So I had that with guys like Craig Berube in Washington. You know, we had Alan May in Washington as well. We had a bunch of, you know, big, tough guys. Berube was here in Philadelphia with me again, which was also a big plus. Players like Rick Tockett. Um, 
Colorado, Brent Severin. We we just said like I was very fortunate that I was a likable individual. And that wasn't by design. That's just I was just really lucky that that's the type of personality that I had. And I think that's probably really served me extremely well as as this whole journey's been taking place. Well, you're definitely uh, an extrovert, uh, you know, so your yeah. personality shows. Which, I, I, which I think it's important, you know, and I think that teams need players like that. And I always tell our scouts, as we're talking about, you know, one scout changed the entire oh, course yeah. of my life. Yeah. And when Sam McMaster was in L.A., we played them with the Capitals my first year, and I he was still there as the GM. And uh, we practiced at the form, and I asked their PR guy, where's, where's Sam McMaster at? And he said, well, he's up in his office there. So after practice, took my gear off, walked up, told his secretary I was coming to say hello. And then as soon as he opened the door, he looked at me and said, I told you. <laughs> yeah. That's and awesome. I was That's like, great. it was great. Yeah. But to take the time to thank him was also important. Oh, yeah. You know, so often in this business, there isn't a thank you. Oh. You know, it's what what uh, you owe me instead of I owe you. Yeah. And that's uh, that's something that I, th- I hope all of our players that come through here with the Flyers kind of understand that. Um, that's that's not always going to happen, but it's something that I think builds a, an organization the right way. We're going to give a shout-out to a couple of our sponsors. Thanks to our friends at Markin & Johnson, longtime supporters of the great game of hockey and our youth throughout the Chippewa Valley region of Wisconsin and Raleigh's Coach Club in Altoona, Wisconsin, located across the street from the Altoona Ice Center on Spooner Avenue, which has been a staple in the Altoona community for decades, providing support and sponsorship for youth and adult sports. Raleigh's has your favorite beverage ready and your favorite team on the screen. Mogi. I'm just... We've got a million questions here for you, Jonesy, and we understand it's a game day and we thank you so much for your time. I don't want to skip over your, your trades and everything like that, but, uh, you know, you talked about what you brought to the game, right? And you talked about how you maybe played a little bit of an agitator role and yeah. got things rolling, but, uh, you played a total of 578 professional games, AHL and including the NHL playoffs, and you scored 129 goals. 153 assists and and you had 875 penalty minutes. Yeah. So you brought some skill to the game, obviously, but it, you liked that physical part of it too. I I, I did, I, and that's really what enabled me to play. You know, in a top six role, I I presented something different that um, I think was really important during the time that I played, and I think it's really important in today's game. It's a lot less common um, those style of players. And that's you've got to be really in today's game much smarter than I even was in my game because it's more difficult to do. Um, you're going to get penalties yourself. You're going to put your team shorthanded. Um, the rules are much different now, you know, as far as hooking and holding and the things you could do to agitate the opposition. It's it's really much more difficult. So um, players like that. Um, the Brad Marchands, now I'm not saying I was him because he's an incredible talent, yeah. but he kind of carved his way into the NHL in that type of role yeah. and then became a great player. There's a couple of guys that do it now, but they're great players. I was a good player. These guys are great players, like Matthew Kachuk. Um, those guys are extremely hard to find. We have one here in Philly that's right there, and that's Travis Konechny. And I really appreciate all the things that he does in his game. He's 
more skillful than I was and is more important because he drives play. He's uh, I was not a line driver. I was a guy that helped a line. So he can drive a line. And those guys are really important in today's game. We're lucky we have one in here in Philly. Yeah. Going back on your career, if you could pick two line mates that you would want on the ice with you on any given shift, who would that be? That's a that's a really hard one because I had some great line mates. Um, I would probably go, oh, man, that's tough because I've got Forsberg, Sackick, Lindros, Claire, <laughs> okay, uh, uh, Kaminsky. <laughs> I mean, I was lucky. I was like Adam Deadmarsh. I'd, I'd take Adam Deadmarsh on my wing anytime. Um, he was a... He was a really talented, tough player and unfortunately took a couple of bad punches from Ed Jovanovsky in a couple of fights, fair fights, but he got hit hard. And uh, that kind of derailed his career, but he was an awesome player to play with. Um, so I, I, I'd i go with uh, – this is really tight, but I would go with I would go with Sackick oh, and uh, Dead Marsh. And that was one line that um, I really had a great time playing with in Colorado and kind of – set my career mark and goals with those players. So I'll, I'll go with that, but it's not an, that's really not an easy one at all. Oh, yeah. Well, you, you had a tough decision. You named some, yeah, some big boys on that list. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. A lot of hall of famers. Absolutely. Like, that's what I was thinking. Pretty I was incredible. Dale Hunter was another that I should never forget because I, I played with Dale and uh, Washington my first couple of years and he was an, he was an awesome player. So that, when I think back on that too, that would be, somebody that would be right in the mix with all that as well. It's, I think he had over 3,000 penalty minutes and over 1,000 points. So, And now he's been great in London with the London Knights yeah. with that franchise. He's just a great hockey man. So you mentioned Eric Lindros. Okay, I want to take you back to the game that you guys were playing against the Nashville Predators, and Lindros suffered a rib injury. Right, right. And uh, it evidently turned out to be a lot more serious than what was yeah, initially yeah. Uh, diagnosed, and evidently the team was looking to fly him home, and you were adamant that. Well, the team was flying home, is the whole thing. Okay, that wasn't that wasn't like they were. That's just the way the schedule was. Sure. So after a rough night, it took some alerting to the medical staff that he was, you know, seemed like it was more than ribs. So they reacted quickly from that point and got Eric to the hospital, and it turned out it was a punctured lung, and thankfully he was. you know, okay after that. But um, I got a lot of credit for saving someone's life, but it wasn't really what it was. It's a, I mean, it's an exaggeration for sure. But it's just being, you know, I was his roommate. I did make some calls. And uh, fortunately, there was a doctor there that knew how to do things a lot better than I did. <laughs> <laughs> that saved his life. So, well, but it was a, it was a right, weird... Well, you, had a, yeah. you had a big part of it, evidently. Yeah, so. I'm sure he's thankful for that. Yeah, of course. Of yeah, course. Absolutely. Yeah. But he would have done the same for anybody else as well. Yeah. You mentioned uh, chasing this referee around in the minus seven game. Any other instances <laughs> that uh, a referee and or coach uh, had to get a little talking to by oh, Josie? Yeah. yeah, I had many fights with and arguments with not not so much the refs. The refs were, in many cases, uh, a good friend of mine because when you're not the guy that wants to fight the heavyweights but you're stirring the pot, those linesmen can come in and save your life every once in a while. <laughs> So you better be nice to them because when they say let them go, that's not the words you want to hear. Especially uh, if you're lined up yeah, against one of the oh big yeah. boys. <laughs> it could crap. be the worst nightmare you've ever heard. So enough of them stood in there and kind of recognized if you were overmatched. So they, they were good 
Very good people. Um, we had a, I did have uh, an incident here in Philly in a playoff game where Terry Gregson had called a penalty late on John LeClaire in an elimination game. Oh. And uh, it was a 1-1 game. They scored on the power play, won the game. And <clears throat> after Mr. Snyder was uh, going pretty wild about the call, and he said to me, say anything you want, I'll pay the fine. So, oh. so I, I kind of said, well, I think I got to say something here. So <laughs> yeah. I did. And uh, I wish I didn't. I, you know, when I look back on it, it was probably, it wasn't the smartest thing to do. And when I looked back at the play, it would actually was a penalty. Um, so the referees were kind of, they were turned off by that the next season. There was, they definitely did not appreciate one of their teammates, uh, you know, getting verbally attacked in the in the press, so I did get fined. Mr. Snyder did pay the fine. He had one big one for himself, and uh, there was some frustration after the game. But um, it probably was well, it was not the right thing to do after the game. But lesson learned on that one. You finally hang up the skates. You know, after I would call it a prestigious career. You 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 were fun to watch. It was a career. It was a career. I actually retired right here in this room that we're sitting in right now. Is that right? Yeah. And Bob Clark, who I know you guys are going to visit with, made the announcement. He sat there and I was wondering to myself, why am I even getting this? Like, you know, it was eight games into the season. My knee was shot and uh, I was just kind of taken aback that there was actually a press conference, you know? So he's, he sits down he says, Jonesy's done. That. That, was <laughs> that was the announcement. <laughs> See if he even remembers when you talk to him. And I thought, well, that's Scott. Didn't sound great. You know, Jonesy's done. 100%. They played it on the radio forever around here, too, after I started doing morning radio. Whenever I would say something stupid, they'd play Jonesy's done. Jonesy's done. Clarky's voice. So, yeah, so that was, uh, that's funny. It was sitting right here in this room, 20. Three years ago, almost 24 years ago that that happened. Almost to the date. It was early November when this, uh, when I retired here. So as a flyer. Yeah. Crazy. Wow. So yeah, you leave the game, you become a, a broadcaster. And I listed some of the guys that you've had an opportunity to, to work with. Bill Clement, Brian Engblom, Mike Milbury, Lee McHugh, Patrick Sharp, all the boys at, at TNT. You don't have that team anymore uh, actually playing hockey but i gotta imagine listening to you guys and watching you yeah. on tv the banter does that become your team then it does and all the same qualities that you had as a teammate when you're playing um i think serve you well in your post playing career there's so many great lessons in hockey whether you make it to the nhl or the american hockey league or don't even get to that level uh, you do learn how to work within a team environment and that's what television was to me um had super guys to work with, very helpful. Um, as you guys know, holding a microphone, there's only one person can talk at one time. So you learn about, you know, making sure you're not hogging it at the same time that you're sharing it and that you're listening to the uh, people that you're working with. Sure. Um, but all those things don't necessarily come naturally. So I think it's important to have people that help you along the way. Bill Clement was one of those guys with me. Brian Englund was a great teacher. Michael Barkan here in the Philadelphia area. Al Morganti, obviously Steve Coates, your good buddy. Um, very welcoming and also great teammates. And I, I do think that's what makes for good television. Well, we certainly enjoyed 
the time that we watched you behind the mic, you know, either during a game, after a game. But eventually, for some reason, you end up between the glass down yep. ringside. Yeah. Was that your choice or was that? Lower? No, it was never my choice. It's kind of uh, sacred ground down there. I, I personally enjoyed doing games from above. Um, but after the switch from NBC to TNT, that was the job that was available. So okay. I just kind of slid into that position. Um, but I know the position well. It's That position is being a complementary piece to the people that are doing the game from up top. You don't want to overwhelm it. You just want to add to it. And if you have an ego, it, it's not going to go well down there because you're going to be trying to hog the mic. And when you're doing a game, there's what's called a talk back button where as the play is going on and being called, if you see something of interest that you want to you know, play back for the audience at the next whistle, you would hold down a talk back button and say in your microphone, because it's not going on the air, it's just going to the truck, hey, save that for me. Uh, that was a, a really great play that just happened. But if both guys are hitting talk back upstairs, the the upstairs guy and the guy down below, then all the guy at the truck hears is noise. He can't really mm -hmm. hear. Oh, so sure. when I was down there, I didn't look so much for all the little things. I left that up to the guy upstairs, which was Eddie Olchuk, who was a great teammate, but also understood that in order for that to work, you can't be fighting for everything. You can't be trying to be the first star. You got to share it. Okay. And that's a, that's not an easy broadcast to do. Um, I, I, I personally enjoyed being upstairs more, but when you have good teammates, it made for a lot of fun to be down there and gave me a great look at really an incredibly close look at every player in the league. Um, and I do think there's benefit to that now in doing the job that I'm doing oh, here. Has to. Um, there was a, you can see inside the player, you can see what their interactions are on the team as far as their bench, uh, how much they're loved. Um, you know, there's just a lot of little things that you can pick up there. So it, tr it turned out to be a great benefit for me. But I do think that in order for that to work, you know, and it works for TNT, is you is just being a good teammate. And Brian Boucher's there in my place now the and flyer. also replaced me here with the Flyers. Yep. So they're in good hands with that. But it can get it can get muddled if it's not the right people doing it. I'm going to give a shout-out again, and then we're going to come back yep, to, to what you're doing now. <clears throat> uh, Riverside Bike and Skate, Eau Claire's Hockey Headquarters, which is the oldest hockey store in the state of Wisconsin. Buy hockey gear from the people that play and know the game. And don't forget about their bicycle sales and service, as well as your paddle sports center for kayaks and canoes. And Dooley's Pub, which has been Eau Claire's home for hockey and all sports fans since 2005. Dooley's Pub is a proud booster of the University of Wisconsin-Eau Claire and local high schools. Dooley's is located on historic Water Street, providing excellent food and service, and has all of your favorite sports televised at all times. So after 18 years as a broadcaster, the Flyers come calling with the president of hockey operations job. Okay, first off, we want to know how it's going for you. First, you're in the, in the position. And secondly, why now and why with the Flyers? Yeah, it, it's it's going well. I, I probably answer the second part first. It, it's the only team that I would have done this with. It's the only team that would have been interested in me to do this. Um, <laughs> you know, it's it is a really rewarding position. It is so far seemed natural. Um, 
I have really good people to work with. We've added some really good people along the way here in the last little while. And I recognize that we need A players both on the ice and in the front office to make us into the type of team that we need to be like this team used to be. Um, I am fearless in adding people that can make us better. And I I don't think that we're going to get there if we don't, you know, make the right decisions. So we're a pretty resourceful team here. Um, We have ownership that will do whatever it takes for us to get back on track, meaning they'll spend, um, and they are willing to take chances. So we're, we're in a good position here to get back on track. And I've got, you know, a general manager in Danny Breer that is sharp as a whip. He is really well thought out, has experience in front office positions, but is also really mindful of everything that goes into what he's doing. And I'm just really impressed by what he does. Got a head coach that's been there, done that, has won a cup before, has done, you know, multiple great coaching jobs with different types of teams and has shown a great buy-in to try to allow us to play our younger players and build this thing properly. And I, th- I think that uh, we owe a lot to what John did last year with this team. Uh, he really, you know, got it headed in the right direction and then kind of opened eyes to where the other uh, spots were that we could improve. And we started that process. It's going to be a while, yeah. but we're going to we're going to keep our fans informed as to what we're doing and make sure that they feel like they're a part of it because that's really what the Flyers have always been about. It's been a community team. It's been a team that has, you know, reached out and made sure people who followed them felt like they were following something special and a part of something special. So we want to get back to that. Absolutely. Are you a uh, uh, individual that, talks to the coach about lineup or scouting, or are you letting that go? Yeah, I'm, I'm there for whatever they need. Okay. Um, I want to make sure that I provide them with everything possible for us to be as good as we can be. Um, so that, that changes every day. You know, there's always something, but I'm around every day. Um, I'm with everybody. I have no ego in this. It's all about us. And okay. we have people within our organization that think, in the same way as far as ego goes. Um, this is this is a challenge. There's no doubt about that. And if we're doing it together, there's a far greater chance that we're going to get it right. And I think that's um, kind of my approach. But I talk to everybody that I can in every position in this organization and to every fan that I can. Um, I'm not going to walk by it. So we, we have players on this team that are doing the same thing. And we have management and you know player personnel guys that are doing the same thing, uh, same thing as well. And that's something that I feel really good about. Sounds like you brought your grit and teamwork from your playing style into the front office. Yeah, I, I don't think there's any other way to do it. You know, there's going to be difficult things that happen that we have to be you know ready for. There's going to be bumps along the way, curveballs, and, and on those, during those days we got to we got to grind through it. And then there's going to be some great days. There's going to be some fastballs staring us right in the eye, and we're going to smack it. <laughs> so Send it that's apart. it. But we're yeah. going to swing. We're not. Uh, we're not going to sit back and not do this thing, recognizing that it's a gigantic challenge, but a great opportunity at the same time. 
every team's goal is ultimately to lift the cup. Yep. What is Keith Jones's short-term goal for this team right now? Just to get us headed in the right direction to ultimately lift the Stanley Cup. And to lift it, you need multiple opportunities to do that. Um, there's once in a while a team catches fire and gets it. Uh, they normally stop just a little bit short, those type of teams. And the Florida Panthers are a great example of that last year. Sure. Um, barely made the playoffs and then made an incredible run, came together as a team, and awesome things can happen in hockey. We want to be a team that's in the playoffs for you know an extended period of time and have multiple opportunities to try to put it together to win it all. So that takes time to build that foundation. But uh, with character players and skill, you can eventually get to that point and we're looking to add skill through the draft and then eventually through free agency okay. when it's time. But right now it's time to build, you know, from within, uh, build our, you know, our team as far as the way that they play the game, how they uh, react and interact with each other. And I'll tell you that so far that's been the biggest plus in the early going of the season. I think they got the right guy in the job. You know, I look at uh, how your hockey career progressed and basically you're going to be working with your kids i'm saying yep. kids the, your younger yep. players and of course you've got some some older vets that are leading the way with these kids the right guys the right characters yep. the right qualities and you're going to figure it out and god we're we're excited for you we, we're excited for i you appreciate and the players. i appreciate it guys we're, we're excited here too we're uh we're gonna figure it out we'll get there <laughs> i i got one last question for you and it's a tough one as a player did you ever have to deal with a cancer in the locker room? And if if so, what would you do now as a president if you've got that same yeah, situation? You know, I, I think they're rare now. Um, I think you can see the signs before they start to become, you know, I think you get to it early. Okay. <laughs> um, and I think we've done that. Um, I can honestly tell you I never had a player that became that, that I played with. Um there was, there was signs that they could, but we always had a really good group of guys around to make sure that that did not fester and become something bigger. And I, I think that um, if you have the right things in place, the right leadership um, throughout not just your front office but through your team, that you have a greater chance of avoiding that. Um, so we're going to try to do it that way, recognize when things are going in the wrong direction and try to make sure we help that player. And um, I think by doing it that way, just being alert, having a good feel for your team, being around, putting the work in, that there's a greater chance that um, you'll be able to deal with that efficiently and hopefully before it becomes, you know, something bigger than that. Jonesy, I, if I was a player on your team, I'd be freaking pumped right now. Good. <laughs> good. I like it. <laughs> You got some size. Get a uniform yeah, he does. On. He does. <laughs> yeah, all I got is size and reach. I got no speed and I got no shot. <laughs> hey, you're big, but you're slow. So, so you're better than Coatsy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like that one. Oh, this has been a blast. Great, guys. Good to catch up with you. I appreciate that. And ladies and gentlemen, please don't forget to leave us a, a comment or a thumbs up, thumbs down on our social media platforms. This helps us stay in the game. And, and again, Keith Jones, thank you. Thank you, guys. Hey, huge thank you to our special guest, Keith Jones, as well as you folks, our audience. 
Please remember to stop in and say hi to our sponsors, Riverside Bike and Skate, Chippewa Valley Orthopedics and Sports Medicine, Raleigh's Coach Club, Dooley's Pub, and Market and Johnson. And follow us on your favorite social media platforms as well as YouTube. And remember, folks, until next time, keep your head on a swivel and stay on your inside edges. Yeah,